I think a materialist approach to things is very, very consistent with uh, my experience in Christian social justice. I feel like the, the deeper I get into anarchist practice, the deeper my faith is getting at the same time. I would hope that you know, securing means of life for all would be something all people of faith would say, oh yes, that's at the basis of what we believe. Those who are most marginalized know the most about the truth, good and the beautiful. To me, it's less that I think building class solidarity is a bad thing, as much as it seems like if you don't attend to things like anti-black racism, um, that's always going to get in the way of building class solidarity, actually. And when you go back, you find that a lot of uh, revolutionary grassroots participatory movements, the, the precursors to what you could call um, the barrio assemblies and these like, you know, grassroots neighborhood organizations, a lot of these were sponsored by the church. What does it mean to say that the Christian tradition is internally contradictory and there are antagonisms there? Um, you're always uh, being faithful to some aspects and betraying other aspects. Welcome to the Magnificast, a podcast about Christianity and leftist politics. I'm your co-host, Matt Bernico. And I'm your other co-host, Dean Delaf. Dean, what's your favorite animal? Whoa, tough. Right on the spot. Um, yep. I've been watching a lot of TikToks about blue whales lately. And I think TikTok oh thinks my favorite animal is the blue whale, and it might be right. Huh. That's cool. I mean, TikTok can't be wrong. What about blue whales do you like? Um, I like how big they are. I like how nice they are. I like how blue they are. Pretty much everything about them. Those are the three big facts about blue whales, and I like them all. <laughs> That's great. Um, yeah, lots of love about these big whales. The biggest babies on the planet, besides right-wing politicians. <laughs> That's right. Uh, and you, what's your favorite member of the beastly kingdom? <laughs> um, man, I would be lion if I didn't say lion is not my answer. I would be lion if I didn't say I love a good raccoon. I think raccoons are great. <laughs> Do you love a bad raccoon? Uh, yeah, I think I think even if they're a bad raccoon, I'd kind of love them anyway. It's just little rascally guys. It's pretty yeah. good. Yeah, anything that really wants your trash is pretty intriguing, I gotta say. Even possums. You know, my son, he loves possums, and every time we see a video of them, he says, I can't believe mom doesn't like these things. I'm like, yeah, <laughs> I can't I believe one, it either. I saw one just yesterday, actually, Possum Watch. Oh, no way. 24, it's already happened. One time when my son was like three, we were walking into our house, and there was this giant possum in our tree, and he said, look, it's a big angry cat. <laughs> Kind of, kind of. Who can say how angry he was, but uh, <laughs> but I could see how that would be the, I could see how that's like what you'd get from just looking at the possum the first time. True, true. Uh, distorted by his anger into that particular shape. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's what they're, they do look kind of angry. Um, anyways, it's, um, I'm asking you this question uh, for the sake of the podcast. I mean, I care personally what animals you like, <laughs> but I'm asking you right now specifically for the podcast. Um, we've been talking about St. Francis uh, the last few weeks. Last week we talked about Pope Francis and St. Francis, and that's cool. We're still on this Francis kick, but like in a different a different register. We're getting into the nitty gritty of St. Francis now. Um, you guys might know that Dean and I are writing a book that has some things to do with St. Francis, so we're like diving down into the depths of uh, St. Francis thought. <laughs> and uh, this week we were really thinking about St. Francis and the relationship he has to animals. 
there are like a lot of stories about St. Francis and animals out there in the world. Um, you know, there's a, there are a lot of these stories. This, this is, I'd not, I've not made notes for this. This is just my own recollection. So maybe this is less <laughs> than accurate, but there are multiple stories about St. Francis, like, um, like rescuing an animal from a trap and then just kind of like setting it on its way. Like there's one, right. there's one about St. Francis, like getting a fish that somebody had caught and then putting it back in the water. And then just t- he tells the fish, like, don't get caught again. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> there are at least three rabbit stories that are exactly the same oh that's right that same story uh and the animals they never learn they get caught every time that, but they, it is interesting though an interesting approach to animals uh that you rescue them from traps you tell them don't get caught and then they do anyways um <laughs> there are a lot of other stories though i think about animals that are not <laughs> about getting caught in traps um there's one that's really interesting that i think is worth talking about that might kind of set the tone for this episode and uh, maybe you've heard of it, maybe you haven't, but this is a story uh, of of St. Francis and the Wolf of Gubbio. Story, it goes something like this. Just outside the city of Gubbio, this is also an abridged version that I'm I'm giving you right here. This is not You're the not official. <laughs> no, 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 no. <laughs> so outside of Gubbio, <laughs> there was a big, a big, angry, ferocious wolf. And it ate the city's livestock and basically anyone else that would come around this dang wolf. It ate everybody. So everyone was mad about that. They didn't like uh, they didn't like this wolf. But Francis, he decided he was going to take care of this whole situation. He left the city to make a deal with the wolf. He said to the wolf, <laughs> literally, he said it. This is this. Is, he spoke it with <laughs> words. Stop eating people. Just live in peace with the city. The people will just like feed you instead of like you eating them. I love. Sorry, just to pause. I just yeah. really feel like there needs to be a sort of drunk hagiography episode at some point with you telling me stories <laughs> uh, of saintly miracles and lives because that's what it feels like is happening, and I'm I'm pretty here for it. I would listen to that episode <laughs> of our podcast for sure. I'm I'm not drunk, but I do not feel very good. So it's kind of like halfway <laughs> there. <laughs> Sick hagiographies. <laughs> so, so anyways, let me get back to it. It's so important. He makes this deal with the wolf not to eat anybody. And that's interesting because, uh, well, first of all, you can't talk to wolves like that usually, but um, he, when he's, he's having this like conversation about a truce with the wolf or like kind of a, a calling a peace with the wolf. It's interesting because Fran- Francis like recognizes that the reason that the wolf is eating people is because the wolf is hungry and the city is like encroaching on the wolf's territorial situation, right? He can't eat all the things he used to because the city is is growing. So anyways, it's interesting that in the story, that's what Francis recognizes about the wolf, that there's like this kind of connection between humans and animals. It's not just uh, and that's maybe a theme of a lot of Francis stories about animals. I, I think sometimes uh, they get really romanticized or whatever. Um as you know, Francis is the guy who's like talking to birds and whatever. That's cool. But there's this kind of recognition of thinking with animals in Francis's life that I think is, uh, I don't know, worth considering. It's a way of thinking about animals and ecology even that we don't do very often as people in 2024. Yeah, I mean, it's easy to like Disney-fy St. Francis, I guess, where he belongs in I don't know, Cinderella or whatever, where all the birds are like helping her put her clothes on or cook her breakfast or whatever it is that she does. Uh, And I feel like, you know, it's easy to imagine Francis in that kind of uh, sanitized way, but there is something pretty radical about Francis blurring the boundary between what humans and animals are and how they dialogue with each other and what it means to see them in, in relationship and not even in a relationship of utility, but of kind of, mutual recognition the wolf of gubbio story is so great because the idea isn't to like make the wolf leave or drive it out that's what you get in some other saintly stories right like 
the kind of famous narratives of saints going and slaying dragons and stuff is like, this is a beast that cannot be redeemed. It can only be destroyed. And Francis's approach is always to figure some weird solution out that ends in a kind of conversation. Even the, uh, the idea of kind of rescuing animals for, from traps and letting them go and just warning them not to get caught again is really fun because uh, he's also not telling people like not to hunt them. He's just like, Hey, I saved you this time, but like you're on your own next time. You know, there's this kind of like recognition <laughs> yeah. that um, there are these acts of mercy, but they're always done uh, in dialogue. Um, yeah, seeing humans and, and animals as part of the same same situation. And I mean, we're not animal studies people, and there are lots of people who have written animal stuff about theology, but uh, we're not reading them this time around. Uh, instead, as Matt and I have been thinking about St. Francis, we've also been just taking the time to think about animals in weird ways. And uh, we found a really wild book um, to do it with. So we're going to do it. We're going to we're going to read these weird essays about animals and see if we can Francis our way through it in the next 50 minutes. Yeah, that's right. Um, so we decided to take a look at a book that is, like you said, pretty far outside of our disciplines and experience. The book is called Animalia, an anti-imperial bestiary of our times. And the book is cool. It's a collection of essays edited by Antoinette Burton and Renissa Milani. The book is very neat because it is like a, okay, in some ways it is very playful as a book. It just, every chapter is A is for ape, B is for boar, C is for cattle. <laughs> so it reminds me of a book that you would have when you were a little kid. But uh, every chapter tells you about the very complicated relationship that uh, each of these animals uh, have with imperialism, especially within the context of like British imperialism, because that's the sort of context they're writing in. But it's pretty neat. So in this episode, we're going to talk about some of the big ideas in Animalia and consider what it might mean to practice a type of like Franciscan thinking with animals approach in 2024. This is um, this is one of those episodes where we're going to read a book and it's kind of like vibes based. And uh, I think that's great. <laughs> but I think the, the the main point, though, is is this like Francis has a really particular way of thinking about animals and like using them um, to help us think about the world differently and our kind of place within it. Right. But other people have different ways of thinking about animals, like, you know, as ways to enclose land and colonize people or um, ways to racially categorize people or something. So I, I think it's uh, it's worth kind of like sticking with this as a as a way of thinking in a way of uh, maybe interrogating the big givens of being a human <laughs> and, and like, you know, thinking that we have supremacy and all this kind of stuff. Um, so uh, a, a different route to maybe think about the world through. And I think it's it's worth doing. I think you're right. Uh, it is worth doing for sure. And, uh, it's fun too, because you can use animals as interesting ways to get into all kinds of stuff. Um, like you said, race, imperialism, there's some great stuff in here on capitalism. Uh, animals have a lot to do with gender. You know, the term husband comes from animal husbandry, extremely weird, very bizarre. And, uh, what's great about this book is that it is playful. As you said, you can kind of like dip in on one, one animal and, you know, you don't have to read it A to Z. Uh, but you get a sort of like gestalt of how British imperialism thinks by thinking through its relationship to animals. So the intro um, kind of lays this out in a really neat way. It says the British Empire was entangled in animal life at every possible scale, whether as imaginative resources, military vehicles, settler food stuff, sat status emblems, contested signs, or motors of capital, animals drive both the symbolic and political economy of modern imperialism wherever it took root. If imperial sovereignty was biopolitical, determining who could live and who must die, 
It was because the quest for racial supremacy was a pursuit of species supremacy and vice versa. And if Empire was a project dedicated to organizing hierarchies of lives worth living, the human and animal distinction served as a recurrent reference point for who is expendable and who would flourish. How we talk about the animalia of Empire, then, is critical to how we narrate the force of imperial power. Uh, I think it's it's just interesting to kind of think about uh, animals also as these kinds of, I don't know, creatures that get sucked into imperial designs and strategies, and even through doing that, have these knock-on effects on how humans treat other human beings and vice versa, the way mm-hmm. humans treat one another uh, cascades down into how uh, we also treat animals. And it's making me think a lot about animals in my own life. I have two cats. One of them has been scratching at this door the whole time because he's very hungry and his food's not in here, but he wants me to get it for him. And uh, <laughs> what a very funny thing that instead I'm doing this podcast and I'm just going to go feed him later and hang out. And I think, you know, there is a lot of interesting kind of power imbalances naturally between humans and especially domesticated animals. And uh, yeah, anyway, uh, let's get into some of the imperial angles here. Uh, Matt, why don't you start us off by talking about A is for ape? Yeah, I would love to. Um, okay. So some of this book, I'm kind of as a preface to getting into this, some of this book is about animals like explicitly, like animals at the at the level of biological reality. And some of this book is more about like the cultural understanding of those animals, and some of them is about like the imaginary um aspect of like how we think about animals in the world. And uh A is for Ape has a little bit to do with each of those sort of subsections or substrates of I don't know, um, reality or whatever, <laughs> each of those aspects of animals. So A is for Ape is a chapter written by a person named Amy E. Martin, and it's very interesting. So Ape is a classification of animals, right? Ape is not like a specific animal. It's like a it's a big group of them. Um, and what's interesting about apes is that, first of all, the word, I didn't know this until I read this book, until I read this chapter. Ape is a word that means to like mimic, right? To 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 mimic a human. So from the very beginning, um, ape is like type of ambiguous classification of a group of animals that are like able to act like human. They have some kind of human qualities about them, but they are like fundamentally subhuman. But they have this type of like uncanny quality to them, uncanny character where they will sometimes they have human emotions kind of, but sometimes they don't depending on how, you know, you're looking at them or whatever. They're kind of like humans, but they're not. That's what I'm trying to say. The in-between quality of apes gives like the Western world this this um, bad template, though, <laughs> to follow in terms of the hierarchy of being. And uh, that is a word I'm using, or that's a phrase I'm using kind of uncritically here, but I'm referencing like a whole group of things, like not just. Um, so when we talk about the hierarchy of being, I think we can talk about a certain way of imagining Darwinian evolution, where like. Um, there's sort of a, a moral quality to it or something where humans are very good and they're at the top and everything else is like less morally good or less important or something. Um, but also we can just talk about it in the ways that we kind of imagine um, the importance of being in the world in terms of like people being at the top and, and, so, and so forth. Anyways, um, but uh, apes have a lot to do with like the subhuman in popular culture especially in like the sort of victorian cultures that's like the context we're talking about here but they, they have this almost human quality and that almost human quality that we get from darwin but also other sort of biological thinkers before darwin it lends a lot of gas <laughs> to the racial discourse in victorian england um here's a quote from this chapter 
Uh, Amy E. Martin writes, apes could call attention to a troubling kinship between human and animals. They also serve both to invoke and reject a troubling common humanity between colonizer and colonized, between slave owner and slave. The domination of colonized people was often legitimized through the use of an, an evolutionary scale of humanity and racist associations between colonized and apes. Right. It's this idea that like um, people who are not white, they're a little bit less than they're a little bit further down the evolutionary line than white people. Right. This is like the uh, the hierarchy of being thing I was talking about a minute ago where it's like, you know, of course, the most um, <laughs> of course, the most evolved people in the world are going to be white people from from England for some, for some reason. Right. <laughs> um, but that's that's like the imaginary part. Um, that's the, the imaginary way that people are relating to this like weird biological thing that's happening um, in terms of like Darwinian evolution and so on. It's complicated, but, um, you know, that, that type of thinking isn't necessarily in Darwin, but it is like a, a thing that people have very quickly adapted to that type of thinking and kind of connected it all together. Um, Amy Martin goes on to write that apes demarcated that which threatened the human and middle-class European values in terrifying ways. In particular, after Darwin, apes were represented in travel, naturalists, and literary narratives. Uh, they appeared as violent, destructive, villainous, and preternaturally strong. So, um, you know, there's this like explosion of, um, of, you know, writing about travel, about biology, about animals and stuff and stuff like, you know, in this time and apes were always like the scary, (laughs) the scary thing out there. And you can, uh, I guess you can kind of follow the logic a bit, not in a good way, in a bad way, but it's like, it's a thing that's almost human. It's sort of like lurking in our evolutionary our evolutionary past. It's like, it's subhuman. It's the stuff that didn't make the cut. We've evolved away from it and so on. Um, but you can see it like emerge in all kinds of other types of, um, you know, popular culture and visual culture. Uh, something that this essay mentions really specifically that I think is interesting is um, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde as like uh, Mr. Hyde, sort of like this, like uh hairy hairy guy that comes out of dr jekyll and he's like ape-like he has all these ape-like qualities and he's you know strong and scary and mean and all this kind of stuff but also all kinds of other bits from this particular time period um like alan quartermain um who's like a gorilla hunter <laughs> you might know him from uh the league of, league of extraordinary gentlemen but this is uh That's exactly where that. i know from yeah exactly this is before that though <laughs> before alan right. moore did something to him um, and then also things like King Kong, right? It's just sort of the same, the same vibe, a big, a big scary monster steals a white woman. That's like, that's the vibe of it, right? It's bad. Um, but you can see that type of like the, the ways that biological thinking and, um, <laughs> racial thinking are joined together in a really potent and gross kind of concoction that, um, white people love throughout history. Uh, <laughs> yeah, there, I mean, Amy, we've. We've talked about this uh, piece in Willem Flusser before, this weird Brazilian media theorist. Um, he wrote a really weird book about vampire squids called The Vampire Tutus Infernalis. And it is a weird book, but there's a really important passage in it where he says that Darwinian ways of thinking about the world are, are right wing precisely because they lead in, in a progressive direction that ends with human beings at the top. And everything else is kind of like a a prefigured human or a malformed human or something that's not quite human. And the key is that the human represents the the perfect image at the end. And of course, in particular, the European human. There's a cultural piece to it, uh, racial piece to it. 
Whereas he says, Felicity says, Francis is the, the left-wing vision of uh, biology, where everything is uh, in a sibling to relationship on a more horizontal plane. And I think that, I mean, that's one reason that Matt and I started thinking about writing this book is actually from, I think, just that incredibly weird paragraph <laughs> in that villain Flusser book. Uh, but I think there's something true about it, right? That um, the story, the biological story of evolution really obviously licenses tons of uh, racial discourse. I mean, you see it in the way that uh, especially Europeans talked about slavery and the kind of natural racial dimensions of slavery and so on. Um, even some abolitionists used that kind of language to be like, you know, they have some paternalistic duty to like raise the other races further along the evolutionary scale or whatever. And I think that's mm-hmm. one way that the Franciscan vision kind of cuts through that stuff, which is to say there, you know, there's not a hierarchy of being um, or shouldn't be uh, at the end of the day. Like the wolf is not less human or subhuman or lower on the chain of humanity. It's uh it's one other creature that we have to sort of dialogue with. And I mean, there's lots of interesting literature too on indigenous spirituality and uh, Franciscan spirituality that kind of have, I think extremely complicated relationship given that the Franciscans were also the Uh colonizing power in the Americas, but uh, you know, lots of interesting Franciscan reflections on sort of a more egalitarian spiritual relationship among creatures and and things anyway, that, that you kind of intuit in a Franciscan vision. Yeah, definitely. That makes sense. I think that in the United States, when it comes to like the um, the imagination around the racial uh, the racial discourse in terms of like apes, at least uh, it's like a deeply anti-black sort of story to tell. Yeah. And I think that's that's definitely true in Europe as well. Um, But the example that's given in this chapter of the book is actually about Irish people, which is, um, I mean, unsurprising, I guess. Uh, but Amy Martin finishes the chapter with this um, with this bit here. She says, colonial modernity is not disrupted by resistance to injustice and exploitation, but by the very nature of those who refuse to be incorporated into the civilizing mission. As Irish people who have participated in anti-colonial movements were understood as apes, they were cast outside of the, whole, of the fold of human. The ape continually marked the porous and mutable boundaries between colonizer and colonized, between those understood as a population to be managed through domination, bureaucratic rule, and those who claim the right to power, and between those whose violence was rationalized as a form of progress and whose resistance was racialized and deemed a vestige of the ape and humankind. So kind of, I think, saying something similar to what you were saying a minute ago, but without the Franciscan part. But yeah, it's um, it's that uh, uh, the, the Darwinian thinking is... Um, you know, like, I don't think that Darwin thinks this because in his books, he explicitly does not right? that like we shouldn't we shouldn't do this. But there is a type of right wing thinking that's kind of latent in that that is troubling that you can definitely see uh, what you know, whether <laughs> whether Darwin intends this or not, <laughs> it doesn't matter because people definitely just picked it up and kind of vibed with it a little too much, you know? Yeah, I mean, there's also something here that I think is really interesting in light of uh, Cedric Robinson's stuff on racial capitalism, because um, one thing that Robinson does that I think is really interesting is to say that uh, anti-black racism is, you know, a a constitutive kind of racism in racial capitalism as it develops in modernity and colonial modernity and so on. But it's premised on the racializing habits that preceded, uh, Mm. especially the slave economy and so on, because, Capitalism has always been a racializing system, and he points to the British and Irish distinction as one of them, right? That this is a 
a racializing form that kind of crops up even at the beginning of capitalism in, in Britain um, through enclosure processes and so on. And much of the rhetoric and kind of ways of thinking and logic that was used to dispossess Irish people of their land was also used to dispossess indigenous peoples in the Americas and also used to kind of see a, a natural relationship between the superiority of the British as opposed to, you know, the people that they stole land from, including anti-black racism, but lots of other forms of racism. And I think the key mm. is to point out that like racial capitalism is a kind of meta category. Um, and it's one that, you know, maybe the history of apes sort of like gives you one more angle on, you know, how bizarre uh, racializing thinking in fact really is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. Well, um, speaking of totalizing <laughs> racial thinking, let's talk about dogs. D is for dogs. <laughs> D is for dogs. Uh, this chapter is really interesting. It's by a person named Heidi J. Nast. For more than 30,000 years, humans and dogs domesticated one another through the mutuality and immediacy of their needs. Their relationship became, became significantly less egalitarian over the next several millennia, particularly in civilizational contexts where selective breeding commenced to create dogs physically tailored for war, hunting, herding, and even the sleeve or lap. With the rise of the British Empire, selective breeding assumed much greater political and economic importance as its productivity circulated through and gathered force from two imaginaries used to elaborate the international. One, the industrial standard, and two, the biological race, their synergy showing the degree to which empire and industry were inseparable. Standardization identified the uniformity of mechanically produced industrial goods with a purity reminiscent of race, race found in the new standard uh, race found in the standard new logical and practical means of hierarchically parsing, ordering, and organizing bodies in space. So uh, a lot of important academic words, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> the the key, I think, right, is that dogs have this kind of interesting relationship uh, with human beings and vice versa. Um, you see this as a pretty standard example in uh, Donna Haraway's thinking and a lot of other sort of animal thinking. Dogs are like the quintessential um I don't know, like story of how humans and uh, the so-called natural world kind of are like they make impressions on each other. They constitute each other. They create each other together in these interesting ways. But something happens um, in especially the rise of racial capitalism where dogs get sort of like pulled into these uh, really violent kinds of uh, genetic programming where, you know, you're trying to make a dog specifically great at fighting other dogs, for example, or killing other people or hunting stuff that you you want to hunt. Uh, they become less like, you know, I don't know, less of a, a seemingly mutual relationship. And surely it's probably not good to, like, romanticize the human dog relationship or whatever. I'm sure there's a lot of bad stuff going on there, too. Uh, but there's something kind of weird about how dogs get, as this person says, kind of standardized, you know, serialized. Um, they become kind of consumer products. And, you know, we see that with dogs today, like they're being bred specifically for incredibly weird, like uh, market desires. Or I think I read this weird article a while back about how like the creator of the golden doodle is like having second thoughts about what they've brought into the world. It's kind of like monstrosity oh, no. of consumer demand. I know, I know. I know. Um, <laughs> I, I have one, and it's true, though. I mean, everyone has one. There's like this, there's a weird market around it, though. There's a political economy of golden doodles, and uh, maybe it's too much. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, but that's kind of the idea, right? Is like 
what's the what are the market demands that kind of basically impinge on the biological story of uh, a creature and then again the kind of racializing demands or racializing uh, habits and and patterns that sort of emerge from uh from all that too from seeing dogs as objects of utility um seeing them as having certain kinds of habits and also breeding them for particular features and not other features you know it's a bit of a eugenic um i mean it, it is a eugenic pro- Absolutely uh, process yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. So dogs and imperialism, what a wild history. Yeah. There's also this really interesting part in this chapter too about uh, gender in dogs. Um, there's this kind of interesting story about the rise of dog fighting in, in Britain um, and how it kind of comes with uh, a particular sort of proletarian background of like miners and stuff. But as, uh, as dog fighting was outlawed in Britain uh, and sorry, and it was like obviously hyper masculine and that kind of thing is you could imagine dog fighting might be, um, I don't want to imagine dog fighting at all, but <laughs> I want to imagine dog snuggling. Um, but, uh, as, uh, dog fighting was phased out, um, but th- then like a more feminine form of like dog existing with kind of came into being, um, and like, there were like lots of toy dog clubs and things like that. So anyways, an interesting, um, another interesting note about it. Okay. One more though. There is this also other, this, uh, this other part of the story too. Um, about the British Empire, like stealing Pekingese dogs from China specifically, right. and then they become this huge fetishized kind of thing in the uh, in the I guess English speaking world, which is very bizarre too. So stupid, <laughs> dogs. I love them, and we've done immeasurable damage to them. I think probably. <laughs> Yeah, also that we can have our very own little guys. Um, there's also a lot of interesting stuff in there about. Uh, yeah, the ways that like dogs impinge back on our racializing imagination. So, for example, there's a cartoon in this chapter that shows a bunch of like countries in Europe or peoples, I guess, and they're all represented by different dogs. And maybe this doesn't translate well on an audio medium, but I don't know. You'll get the idea. Uh, this person writes. Such canine inflected racial geographies of empire would assume cartographic proportions by the end of empire through maps satirically depicting European imperial powers as purebred dogs. One example is Hark Hark, the Dogs Do Bark, published in 1914. The map takes its title from an English nursery rhyme with political origins and uses that may date back to the 11th century. Each major European imperial power figures as a distinct pedigree of canine men, except for Austria, which the caption deems a mongrel. Turkey, by contrast, is represented by the dog of Constantinople, said to be an awful eating cur. Thus, the distinctions of pedigree first made in Imperial Britain allowed the dog to be used as a racialized geopolitical device. Um, This is another thing I really like about this book. Uh, Each chapter has kind of a a cultural history piece to it as well. Oh, yeah. Showing maybe like how animals figure into like, yeah, geopolitical imagination and imperial imagination. And I think that's really fascinating, too, to sort of like, I guess, force animals to stand in for all these other weird metaphorized ways that humans are doing violence to each other uh it's like yeah there's a certain symbolic violence that's done to animals in that imperialist uh work um which mm-hmm. i think is pretty fascinating there's the there's the cultural history to each part too that's great but there's also like a visual aspect to every chapter where there's like a little mm-hmm. a picture or a cartoon that they usually tell you about man it's great sometimes collected um collected volumes like this of just like a bunch of essays are bad but this one really good <laughs> i like it a lot um all right let's talk about foxes uh what does the fox say 
Um, okay. So foxes in this book are very interesting. Um, there are a bunch of foxes that live under my back porch. So I was really excited to read this part. And <laughs> it is actually very funny to read in that context. Um, I was reading this just above the foxes beneath my feet. And that was a great experience. So uh, foxes in terms of like English imperialism, you can kind of guess where they might come in a fox hunt. That's like the sort of like one cultural moment, I guess, of of like 18th, 18th century Victorian England is the fox hunt, um, a really highly ritualized bourgeois pastime, um, a bunch of guys, uh, a bunch of lords, I guess, not guys, they're lords. <laughs> They're riding around on their horses. They're sicking their dogs on these foxes, and the uh, foxes are getting ripped to shreds. You've probably seen it in a movie or something. I don't know. There's a Futurama episode about it. Oh, there's a Futurama episode about it. Good point. Yeah, okay. The uh, the gist of this chapter, though, is really wild because English people, they decided that fox hunting was like such an important and quintessential English thing to do that it should be exported to all of the English colonies. <laughs> So fox hunting was exported to places like India, Ireland, and Australia, and I think South Africa as well. Yeah, Canada too. Oh yeah, Canada, that's right. There's a whole part in there about Canada. Is that, nobody fox hunts in Canada anymore, right? That can't be a thing. Who could say? I have no idea. This country is out of control. (laughs) Okay, good point. (laughs) I'm going to keep pretending it doesn't happen anywhere because I like (laughs) these little guys, these little foxes. So anyways, um, everywhere fox hunting was imported, it always exacerbated the relationship between the colonists and the colonized, which is a very interesting thing. Uh, foxes are a part of the class war, I guess, is the, the moral of the story. So since foxes aren't indigenous to places like Australia, for example, they had to be imported. And when they did, they'd terrorize like the local farmers' crops and their animals um, and, you know, eat all of the stuff. So foxes... <laughs> are I, I hate saying this i hate bringing myself to say it i can't i don't even like to think about the idea but foxes are mostly vermin is what this book tells <laughs> me and i get it right if you're a farmer i can imagine thinking that me as a person that lives in a house and they live in my porch i think they're cute little guys and i love seeing them <laughs> um but according to this book according to farmers i, I guess <laughs> they're vermin and um they make everyone's lives uh, a little bit harder but the, the funny thing is that the British colonists are like, you know, they're colonizing all of these different places around the world. And they're trying to make sure that they can extract the resources from that land. But also because of their dumb, stupid hobbies where they like to <laughs> they like to hunt foxes. They're also like um, actively like working against themselves because introducing foxes into the like local ecosystems uh Upset the balance because in the, uh, you know, there's nothing to eat the foxes. There's nothing. So the foxes flourish and they like they're they're uh, out of control in Australia. This particularly happens because the British colonists make foxes a protected class. So it's like this very funny thing where these things that are mostly vermin to farmers become a protected class so that these like extremely wealthy colonists can go hunt them with their friends. And in doing so, like it upsets the balance of the entire ecosystem and also like you know, is an active part of like destroying the farms that they're using to extract re- like the resources from the country. <laughs> it's, it's all stupid. It's all so dumb. Um, anyways, uh, the, this chapter about foxes ends in a really funny way that uh, I liked a lot. And this is, uh, this is the way that it ends in Britain. The foxes had the last word no longer pursued by horse and hound, but by creeping suburbanization foxes have colonized British cities, especially London. They've migrated into the capital in the thousands, along railway lines, canals, taking up residence in the public parks and domestic gardens. 
No longer raiding the farmer's hen house, urban foxes feast on the city's abundant garbage and its vast population of rats, squirrels, and pigeons with an occasional house pet to vary their diet. I like this part at the end because, you know, most of these stories about animals are kind of bummers. Um, you know, uh, people can't just like think about apes as being cool, <laughs> as cool guys. <laughs> they have to be like racialized and dogs the same way. But at least in this story, we get a nice ending where it's like, and foxes have had the last laugh because they're still <laughs> now, now they live under your porch and they like make your dog really mad. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> so anyways, it's good. It's a good ending to the story. I mean, it's probably bad overall for the, um, you know, the introduction of a, uh, animal into different environs and stuff. That's bad. Uh, the story about Australia is that like foxes were just like running amok and they basically made a law where you would get paid by the Australian government to kill a fox cause there are so many, but anyways, nice to see that there's a little bit of payback and I appreciate that. <laughs> That's right. The true uh, the true Franciscan compromise has yet to be reached. Yeah, exactly. Um, no one has just tell. There's no St. Francis just to tell the foxes just chill out. Or maybe maybe they did. And that's why the foxes are in the city. It's hard to say. That's, that's right. how the that is how the uh, the wolf of Gubbio ends, though. Uh, Francis tells the wolf that he could just come into the city and people will feed them, uh, feed him from the, from their doorways. And I guess that is kind of what's happening. Yeah, it's true. Man, it's true. It's deep if you think about it. <laughs> but the uh, the people of the village have to accept it. That's the key. All right, let's talk about whales. There are actually two chapters in this whole book about whales. Um, one about an incredibly specific whale, the North Atlantic right whale. But we're going to talk about the chapter W is for whale, generic whales by Jonathan Goldberg Hiller. Um, it's a great chapter, uh, especially because, as we said earlier, TikTok thinks my favorite animal is a whale. And maybe it is. Maybe that's why I picked this chapter. Who could say? Uh, what I really like about it is the beginning of it is basically like what even are whales to human beings. Um, it does this really fun kind of like greatest hits of how whales have been perceived in human society, at least like Western society for the most part. For example, uh, he talks about how they appear as kind of like weird fish monsters in ancient Greek mythology. They might be kind of biblical sea monsters. Some people have suggested that like the Leviathan is a whale. I don't think so. I think the Leviathan is weirder than that, but who could say? Maybe um, <laughs> sure. the biblical cryptid for sure. Uh, the whale is sort of a, a Hobbesian metaphor for sovereignty of the Leviathan. Um, eventually, the the whale takes on a, a role um, as a symbol of Jesus, the redeemer of Christian fish. I think that's great of the big jesus whale uh but the whale is also a symbol of satan so basically humans have no idea what they're doing with whales we don't know what they are we don't know if we like them or not <laughs> we don't know if they're literally the devil or god uh, we can't figure it out and what i find really fascinating is throughout the chapter there's this distinction between colonial and indigenous ways of thinking about whales in particular and some of them are probably obvious to you right like colonists they see whales as a resource they pattern even their own uh, navigational behavior around how to get as many whales as they can possibly get. They see whales as a symbol of imperial power. They are hunted for oil for use in lamps. They're hunted for whalebone prostheses, for whalebone dresses, all these kinds of wild things. And, you know, on the other hand, indigenous peoples participate differently with whale ecosystems and patterns, uh, even kind of living together with whales, not in some like romanticized way, but uh, by virtue of the the kinds of other hunting that indigenous people do, like 
taking certain things from the ocean floor and so on. They also like help prepare a habitat for whales. So there's this kind of interesting like dialogue between um, human beings and whales in those uh, cultural situations. Uh, It's a really fascinating chapter because it does kind of go through these two divergent ways of seeing whales as like brute resource or as, uh, you know, something to participate with. And what I find really fascinating is by the time you get to the 20th century, um, you get to the vision of the whale as this like ultimate symbol for everything that's wrong in our ecological relationship to society. So you have the the big Save the Whales campaign, which I guess is, I mean, I remember growing up kind of the, the butt of the environmental joke. Um, you know, it's tree huggers and people who want to save the whales. Those are the two butts of, uh, of jokes about hippies or whatever. Um, and also you get this weird, like sentimentalizing of whales. So SeaWorld contributes to that. You get movies like Free Willy, um, all these ways that whales are like closer to humans. There's these analogies made between like whale intelligence and human intelligence and so on. They're kind of like (laughs) the chapter doesn't say this, but they're basically ocean apes. If you think about it, uh, they're sort (laughs) of, they're sort of people, they're sort of animals. They're, they kind of are, you know, blurred creatures that way. And at the same time, uh, indigenous life is kind of romanticized in ways that uh, that were turned against indigenous sovereignty as well. Um, there's an interesting kind of like reversal where uh, the settler societies are obsessed with saving the whales. And the chapter tells a story about how um, there's one instance where uh, one nation wanted to fight for their right to hunt whales because that's part of their life and culture. And it like created this huge cultural argument in the 90s. Um, and there's this kind of really bizarre situation, right? Where like the save the whales crowd, which often romanticizes indigenous life, um, couldn't stomach the idea that indigenous people wanted to hunt whales as part of their relationship with whales. So all that to say colonialism is extremely weird. Just a bunch of people kind of asserting their specific vision over what whales are and should be and whether or not we should protect them or hunt them and how, uh, and also mobilizing those visions against other human beings and their own relationship to to whales, in particular indigenous yeah. peoples. Um, I thought it was, it's a great chapter because, like, you know, you could get the impression that, uh, oh, man, humans, they act in weird ways uh, with respect to animals. But what's great about the book in this chapter in particular is that it's always pulling out the kind of imperialist specificity, like specific humans relate to animals this way. And that sets off yeah, this yeah. kind of chain of, of problems. So. This is a good one because it includes a lot of the the other side of maybe a different way of relating to to whales. Yeah, it's it's worth mentioning too. I mean, the specificity of how some humans act towards animals is good. Like we've talked about this on the in the past. I mean, we did a whole episode on on the value of the whale book, but you know, there's a whole IMF white paper about like how much a whale means economically. <laughs> you know, how much is it worth <laughs> economically in terms of like it, it as a carbon sink or something. And uh, it's stupid, man. It's so weird because I don't think, you know, the average person thinks all that much about animals or, you know, they don't think about them in, in a significant way. But uh, there's so much culturally going on with our metaphors of our self-understanding um, of our understanding of other people because of the ways that we think through and of animals. And uh, man, I don't know. We should think about it more. <laughs> we should think about <laughs> animals a bit more because I think there's a lot going on there um, in terms of like what it means to be a person or how we imagine ourselves in the world. Yeah. Or how to be an animal ourselves in the world. That's true. Oh boy. Um, 
you know, there's one other part I kind of want to mention really quickly because I thought it was um, good in terms of the specificity of like how some people think of animals. Um, there's a part in the book called C is for Cattle by Renisha Milani, one of the co-editors of the book. So this whole section um, is about cattle, cows, as you can imagine, um, and their particular import to colonists um, as a food source. Uh, and I think it's interesting for a lot of reasons because, you know, like, okay, um, as a as a white person who grew up in North America, beef is like a pretty important thing. Um, mm-hmm. But even as a white person that grew up in North America, you get you guys have no idea how important beef is in England, in Britain. <laughs> <laughs> I think in general, it's everywhere here. Uh, people love it. And it's like a pretty important cultural situation. Um, and anyways, that plays out through the colonizing efforts of the British Empire as well. So, you know, anywhere, any any place that like colonists go, cows basically go to for you know, usually for worse because they don't belong in those places, like in <laughs> terms of the environment or ecology. So anyways, um, with regard to that particular idea, uh, uh, there's a bit in the chapter that I think is worth talking about. And uh, it's this cattle were not indigenous to North America, Hawaii, or Australia, though they were brought to the far regions of Britain's empire through the movement of colonists and settlers. They became agents of colonization in their own right. The introduction of cattle allows settlers new ways to dispossess indigenous people from their ancestral lands, waterways, and natural resources, and to overwrite indigenous claims to sovereignty and self-determination that remain ongoing sites of struggle today. Um, Here's an example. In Hawaii, cattle dramatically altered land environments by destroying local ecosystems. Cattle farming initiated processes for deforestation and introduced deadly diseases that carried serious implications for human and non-human ecologies. Cattle fed off plants that were vital to indigenous life and also provided uh, rationales for territorial displacement. I think this section is actually really important, too, in terms of, like, the ways that some people are thinking about animals and the ways that, like, we shouldn't think about animals. <laughs> but, like, you know, we um, an idea we've talked about on the show before is the idea of, like, structural adjustment, the ways that big economic, you know, organizations like the IMF or the World Bank or, you know, wh- whoever, one of them, <laughs> all of those big ones out there, they will, you know, get a particular colonial space uh, or post-colonial space, like ready for a type of capitalist production or try to integrate it into capitalist production. And usually we think about that in terms of enclosure, like how do you dispossess an indigenous population of their land so that they can't be subsistence farmers and they have to be, you know, they have to sell their labor to a capitalist or whatever. And uh, usually that is like, you know, it's like building a factory. It's like getting someone to sell the land. It's seizing the land or whatever. But I guess what's really interesting is like that cattle is a part of that story in a really live way that, uh, you know, you can't have cattle in the place um, without having grazing space, right. Or space for that cattle to be mm-hmm. and living its life. So anyways, it's interesting though, that cattle is like, it's caught up in, in those particular like machinations of imperialism and like on purpose too like you know they they do it all on purpose that's like there's no part of imperialism that's accidental um (laughs) but um interesting though you know it's not the way that like anyone probably thinks of their of their big juicy burger or whatever but you know that's the story of cattle in north america in in places like hawaii australia it's the it's the story of you know imperialism (laughs) of the dispossession of (laughs) land um wild yeah 
It is wild. Um, it makes me wish that there was actually a U.S. Uh, version of this book because learning about the, the British imperialist imagination is really interesting and it kind of allows you to dig into a, a deep archive of stuff. And I don't know, Br- you know, British people are weird in terms of uh, like the way that the bourgeoisie and the new nubi- the nobility are just so like easy to hate or like the aristocracy is really easy <laughs> to be like yeah that obviously yeah. sucks like <laughs> fox hunting is insane why would you do that um but the uh w- the cattle chapter in particular made me think about the u.s where cattle are just so obviously part of uh the colonial imagination right like i mean right the cowboys and in indian story or uh just seeing cattle as I guess, uh, a symbol of status and the size of people's ranches and all that kind of stuff. And uh, it makes me wonder, too, what, what other kind of like U.S. Uh, particular U.S. imperial imaginaries fund the bestiary. We got to get these editors to just do some more more weird bestiaries around uh, <laughs> other imperial powers and how to think about animals. What a great American thing to do to go to go to some academics and be like, hey, you wrote this great book about the UK and like British <laughs> imperialism. Can you do it for America so we can just kind of read it? <laughs> they can do it for um, the French too, the Spanish, the Portuguese. The, I'll take them all. I'm just saying the I cowboy is such a such a big problem. Yeah, absolutely. You know, there's this other section of the book that I think is really fascinating, and I didn't write any notes for it, and we don't really have that much time to talk about it, but it's about so the there's a section called You is for Unicorn. <laughs> and uh, I read that one right away because the uh, the national animal of Scotland, my my new homeland, the place that I'm living <laughs> for for a while at least, <laughs> is the unicorn. Um, and uh, well, that's funny because it's not a real animal. But uh, anyways, this whole chapter is kind of about the imaginary of the unicorn and like like where it comes from, what does it mean? But it's it's super fascinating because it ends up being a chapter about Orientalism and the ways that. People in the British Empire, um, like kind of, I don't know, maybe maybe duped is not the right word, but they did get duped into buying a lot of like, quote unquote, traditional Chinese medicine that was like ground up (laughs) unicorn horn um, that had all kinds of interesting medicinal properties. Anyways, I loved it. It was great. Um, A great chapter. (laughs) Very fun to read. Um, Yeah. There's a lot of good ones in here. There's a good one on mosquitoes. Um, there is, like I said, a good one on a an incredibly specific whale. Uh, lots of other animals running around in here. It's a great, a great book. Um, we probably should have focused on things that maybe aren't as even familiar. There's there's some good ones of animals I've like never heard of, but are important in the colonial imagination. It's a great book. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Um, if there was an American version of this book, there would definitely be a section about Bigfoot, though, right? That would be the imaginary animal that we could throw into the mix. That's right. Um, definitely the Mothman, he'd be in there, all of them. <laughs> yeah, um, man, writing the same book, but about um, cryptids would be fun. Uh, anyways, Dean, uh, we're kind of closing in on the end here. <laughs> what are we thinking about this this Franciscan project, right? I mean, Francis, he's this guy. He's rescuing rabbits from traps. He's um, making sort of a, a a peace a peaceful situation, a pact with uh, this wolf in this town. Um, what do we think about this book, though? As uh, 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 I don't know, as people who are interested in Saint Francis as a person and his approach to animals, and then like all the stuff about imperialism, what do we make of all this? Yeah, great question. Uh, I think for me, the the challenge of the book is to think through how do you have an anti-imperialist understanding of animals and how do you also do justice to the ways that racial capitalism and all its tendrils of other forms of injustice uh, 
how do you do kind of how do you be responsible or, or attentive to the ways that those systems have uh, not only harmed human beings, um, even though that's extremely important, but also harmed all the rest of the things on our planet. I mean, you could kind of think uh, in the same way about plants, right? You could think about so many other forms of life. And I think what Francis does, what St. Francis does, is just tries to suggest a way of being in the world, a way of relating to creation that uh, would subvert an imperial appetite. Uh, what's hard is, like, there are all, all kinds of contradictions there, right? But as I said, the Franciscans were the the big colonial force in the Americas and many other places, too. Um, so they didn't get the memo, I guess. But I do think that the way St. Francis treats animals is instructive for a kind of anti-imperialist relationship. You know, one where you have to, like, reach a compromise with the wolf instead of killing it or getting rid of it or being like, you're not allowed to be here because the priority is the the humans. Um, instead, the priority is being like, we're all kind of stuck with each other and we have to figure out what we both need and and how to uh, address those needs in a, a mutual way. Uh, I don't know, Matt, what do you think? What is uh, what does St. Francis have to say after reading this anti-imperial beast theory? <laughs> Man, I have no idea what he has to say. But what I, what I have to say is that... Um, I mean, what you're saying is good, right? Like, uh, we have to think about animals in ways that are anti-imperialist. But I think, like, even beyond that, we just have to think about animals. <laughs> we have to think about creation. We have to think about, like, <laughs> ecology, I, I think, more than we do. I'm a person who is, I don't know, really trying to stretch my brain to think in a less anthropocentric way all the time about things. I mean, whatever that might actually mean. You know, you can't you can't really do it because... I mean, who knows how a cow thinks or a whale thinks? I don't know. It's all kind of speculative. But, you know, you're trying to trying to take more things into consideration than just like the human viewpoint of, of the world or whatever, or what might be good for humans. And I think at least what this book does is it shows you all of these things that people have done with animals and alongside animals and like thinking through like the imaginary <laughs> relationship with animals. And it shows you like how dumb it all is, I guess. And um I guess just like kind of gives you eyes to see because I think even, even as a person who's like trying to think in less anthropocentric ways, I still don't think about animals all that much because I just like don't see them all that much. And I probably in a lot of ways think of myself very separate from them. Um, and uh, maybe I shouldn't is what this book is kind of telling me uh, because <laughs> so much of like the life that I live and the life that we all live is like really kind of in the shadow of these like, particular organizations of other beings that we, you know, barely ever see. It's it's like, I don't know, I'll go take a walk outside and I'll be like, oh man, look at all these sheep. Isn't that cool? And I don't ever think anything else of it. <laughs> you know, I don't ever think, mm-hmm. why why are these sheep here? What are they doing? What, what are like, what problems are they causing? What, what solutions do they lend? You know, all this kind of stuff. Um, when, you know, the deforestation of Scotland is also a pretty huge problem right you know it's it's um it's not just like of course like the the colonizer um colonized situation is is definitely true for the british empire but also like the the deforestation of scotland has been a a big part and like it was done through cattle through grazing of sheep like on the sides of hills and stuff you know and and now there's like no trees there so all that say like these conversations i think are not like in the past they're not victorian conversations even though that's like the scope of this book i think they're pretty live and active uh even today 
I love it. Well, uh, on that note, my cats need to eat dinner, um, as they have been telling me this whole time, uh, and it's probably responsible for a lot of noise interference <laughs> throughout this whole episode. <laughs> so I'm going to feed them. And uh, until next time, thanks for listening to The Magnificast. If you like what you heard, you can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash The Magnificast. Um, if you support us at two bucks or more, you can get into our discord where we're doing a big Bible study all year round. Um, we're just slowly making our way out of the Torah and, uh, it's going to get really weird, uh, in there very soon. So you can jump on board. You can start wherever our music is by Amari Armstrong and our outro is by the illogical spoon. And we'll see you next week. I don't want to get up for church in the morning, church in the morning, souls alive. Heaven come to earth and there won't be no church. We'll meet down by the riverside. There we'll swim with all creation. Never get tired, never bored. Don't worry, someday there'll be no dam between us and our Lord. Jackson, keep your hoods up. Keep your hoods up and you stay up late in Jackson. You keep your hoods up, well you keep your hoods up and you stay up late. Oh, don't mind a cold night, but we might mind if you leave too soon. So come on now, it's still early. Besides, what else I...